Welcome to another edition of Two Irish Guys Discussing Software. This is Tomas O'Leary, your host. I, today, am unfortunately on my own. A single Irish guy is what you could call me. But we have a fantastic episode today. Here we are. Sorry we haven't been talking to some of you for a while. We'll be back on track. We're trying to be looking for the other Irish guy. He's been wandering around the office somewhere here. I will get my hands on him. But let me share with you a, a session we did and I did from our recent Empower event, which we held only a couple of weeks ago. It is our way of presenting options to our customer, our market, about what is possible in the technology space. And we were delighted to have a speaker, Tom Goodwin, who is a author. He is a futurist, but most importantly, he's a pragmatist, a realist, and what I like to call a healthy skeptic. We had a fantastic conversation. We opened the conversation talking about the post-digital age, focusing less on everything new, but more on what actually matters, something that's very close to my heart, and I know to many of our listeners' hearts, and indeed to Tom's. Very interestingly, we spoke about what's happening, that, that we are in the mid-stage of the technology revolution. What does that mean for us as individuals? How do we take power back into our hands as users of technology? There is a shift in that, as we can all see, particularly when you look at things like what's happening in the Senate and Congress in the United States and what's happening in Europe in terms of legislation and pressure that's been put on big technology companies such as IBM and HCL, which we are regular talkers about. So that was very fascinating. And also we're talking about the emergence of new business models Again, we here in Origin are always trying to push out the, what we call the concierge mindset and the fact that you know there's a huge push to automate things in the technology space. We're trying to bring a personalization back into in the technology space, and Tom is a big proponent of that. And we also spoke about digital transformation. So without further ado, I would love to let you listen to what Tom spoke about at our recent Empowerment session. So over to Tom. I hope you don't mind me at the beginning. I called you a pragmatic skeptic. Uh, <laughs> I like it. I like it. And now that you have told everybody that we have everything we need, uh, I can see where you're coming from, actually. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and to be honest with you, I, I wouldn't disagree. Um, mm-hmm. I am curious. I'd love to bring the conversation. Fascinating. And there's so many things in, in, your, in your talk there I want to talk to you about. But while you were, while you were talking there, I was thinking through kind of, you know, particularly your comment around the focus on less on what's new and focus more on what matters, okay? Mm-hmm. And in my head, I'm thinking, well, if we take ourselves out of our industry and just on the, go to the street, what are the things that actually matter on the street? You know, if you go home to your family and have a big conversation about what matters, they, you know, I tend to, in my, in my opinion, they tend to be kind of, there's three things, really. There's there's the, you know, the climate crisis is one, climate change, which we see in front of us every day of the week. I mean, you're in Cannes, you said it was supposed to be lovely weather and it's raining now. I think it can, it can rain in Cannes in, in June, so don't worry, I wouldn't, I wouldn't panic. Um, um, uh, there's the inequality gaps, the massive inequality gaps that exist in the world today and within, between countries, within countries. You've seen the, the shift that's happening as a result of that, the political shift that's happening. And this kind of whole anti-globalization movement. Um, I wonder, could we talk a little bit about where technology kind of fits into the, the, those three themes, if that was okay with you? 
Yeah. Um, this is going to start off as quite a high level sort of impractical reply um, and a bit fluffy. But I mean, broadly speaking, technology is a tool. Uh, you know, that's the kind of definition of technology as a tool. And broadly speaking, um, technology has always been amazing for us. Um, whenever there is a new technology, people get scared. Um, but it allows us to do more. Um, the first tools were levers to our bodies, you know, everything from the plow to the loom. Um, and people freaked out and thought the jobs would be lost and actually more jobs were created and they were better jobs. Uh, and they meant that we didn't wear out our bodies. Um, then computers kind of became levers to our minds. Um, and now people get scared because they think that means that humanity is sort of disappearing and that every job's going to be lost. But there's no reason when you look at history to see technology in a bad light. Uh, technology always creates more wealth. Um, I think we're at this weird period of time where because of how we've used some of this technology quite early on in its development, uh, we see it as being a negative thing. You know, we see the internet as being a way for terrorists to spread information. We see um, airplanes as a way to pollute the planet. Um, everything from some cyber bullying all the way through to uh, sort of deregulated industries. But what we need to do now really is to sort of turn it around and think how can we use technology to do good in lots of different places. Um, it's an unfashionable opinion um, and it gets me into trouble, but I am incredibly um, proud and supportive of human ingenuity. And I think that it gives us the energy and some of the tools, perhaps not to solve climate change, but perhaps to mitigate some of the effects of it, for example. And I think um, we should be more aware that thinking our way through mitigation is probably a sensible way to do these things. When it comes to things like economic inequality, I think the problem is that we don't recognize that as being a bigger as big a problem as it is. I think what we really have there is sort of political conversations rather than technological ones. Um, do you have a view on what's happening? I mean, when I think about the, the, <laughs> the closing the equality gap, I, yeah. I look at what's happening with both in Europe and in the US, the kind of putting it up to big technology um, uh, in both the Congress and, and, and you know, you will have, we're going to have a talk later, you're going to hear um, yeah, a conversation yeah. about the whole right to repair movement. But um, which has a play clearly on the sustainability angle, clearly. Um, but the whole, I think there's, there is seems to be, and this happens from time to time. You can go back a hundred years ago when they took on the big, um, uh, the mega wealthy industrialists and and the owners of the railway lines and and and, and everything else that you know when they broke up big monopolies. It seems that that's happening again. I think, and, they, and I think for us as humans. We need to see things like that. We, we, it's, it's not healthy to see, you know, when, when an individual like Elon Musk can decide to buy a, you know, pay 44 billion, whatever he's going to ultimately pay that, dollars for, um, you know, a, what he's describing as it's a, you know, marketplace. Um, but a marketplace where actually nothing really gets bought and sold. It's just a marketplace where people have a conversation. I mean, it, it's outrageous. You know. I mean, broadly speaking, technology gives us all of the solutions, but it's only politics and um, regulation and legislation that sort of creates the environment in which those solutions can flourish. 
Um, it, it's very interesting when you look through history because, like you say, you know, Carnegie and, and sort of oil wealth, you had the sort of the barons that owned railways. So we're not in a particularly unusual situation. Um, I think when you realize the power of technology, I mean, you could now, um, if you wanted to educate all of sub Saharan Africa uh, 50 years ago, you know, you'd have to build a network of roads and libraries um, and staff them and train them. Now you can build a 5G network and hand out tablets that cost about $15. Um, and gen genuinely, studies have shown that just handing out technology to people all over the world, when you combine that with human curiosity, means that you end up with enormous amounts of learning, but also mm -hmm. enormous amounts of entrepreneurialism. Um, you know, it's now possible for anyone um, with $25 and an hour to set up a Shopify website to sell any product they want in the world. And you now read about, you know, millionaires that decided to do drop shipping. Um, so I'm not so relaxed as just to say, oh, we just give everyone in the world a tablet and everything's going to be fine. Mm. But I am saying we have all of the sort of energy and we have all of the right human traits that as long as we can create an environment where that's shaped in the right way, um, everything from increasing rates of recycling through to reducing resource use through to education to reduce corruption, like technology cannot be the solution, but it can be a very big part of the solution for most of the um, sort of goals when it comes to improving the planet. Yeah, no, I think I think I think you're making the, the point that you made earlier that we have everything we need. I guess the yeah. challenge is it's not what you describe what would be lovely if it happened as frequently as it should happen. It doesn't, even though it's so easy in comparison to what it would have been like, it's still yeah. not it's still it's still not happening. And I wonder, I'd like to know, because I, I loved your description of where we fit as the, the, the S curve and where we fit in that kind of journey, technology journey. And you're saying, which I would tend to agree with we're at this kind of mid stage in the technology revolution and i guess like every stage in a, in a revolution and it, it happens over long periods of time you it's almost like it's there's an obligation on people outside the industry to put some parameters around that we have we have an in, we have an industry to date that's done amazing things but it's self-regulated it's all the rules are designed by the people who are in the industry. And what that ultimately was great at the beginning because it allowed you know, new ideas to flourish really, really quickly. The difficulty is later on when you, when you concentrate the money and power within a small number of, of, of people and organizations, um, they, their human nature just will fall into looking to manipulate that. And we have to have people, whether they're regular, I mean, not necessarily, don't all have to be regulators or whatever, but something that sets some boundaries and some rules around that. I'm, I'm curious to see what you think. I mean, I mean, in the industry we're in, we're targeting um, customers who use technology in a space where actually there's very few, very few, the rules were all set by the actual, the publishers, the manufacturers. And the danger is, and one of the reasons you'll hear about free ICT later is to make sure that they don't change all the rules that, that, are, that work today, they could change them in the morning if they got away with it. And they would, <laughs> honestly, that's what they would do. They would, they, if they, they would absolutely change them in the morning and they, with this history where, where that's happened. So, um, but do you have a view on whether some of those, let's call them rules or kind of general principles are important now at this point? 
Yeah, I mean, everything in innovation is basically a design process. Um, and every design process goes through periods where it's sort of divergent and then convergent. And um, it really is extraordinary. I mean, I'm not a historian by any stretch of the imagination, but when you read about just a single technology um, like railways or like electricity, um, you realize that the same conversations happen, you know, when electricity was discovered and first put into factories, you know, no one really knew what to do with it, they tended to use it the wrong way, there are lots of different standards, you know, people's domestic homes, when electricity was first installed, there was no agreement on whether it should be AC or DC, there was no agreement on the voltage, different power stations produce different types of power, um, all of the lighting fixtures were very different, and then when there'd been enough sort of chaos uh, you almost need the chaos and you need the sort of unbridled enthusiasm and entrepreneurialism to sort of move something forward. And then when you get to the point where the chaos is greater um, than the sort of energy, um, you then have a period of, of standardization. Um, and it takes a long time. I mean, it's amazing now to think there are now, um, I think, 13 different types of electric plug socket in the world still. Um, there's still different charges, you know, USB-C, USB-C, uh, B. Um, it takes a really long time, and the most important question really is how much, um, how much in the development of protocols reduces innovation, how much of it cements existing advantages, um, how much of it reduces the possibility of new entrants, um, and I don't know enough about the specific area you're in to comment on that. Um, but generally speaking, this seems to be a good time to have more standards. Um, as long as a large number of people are invited to the party um, and things like the, you know, movement to the right to repair, um, you know, things like that seem absolutely essential. And, um, yeah. you because know. they themselves, you talked about, you know, new business models being created and you, you showed a whole lot of examples of obviously different types of companies um, doing um uh do different types of companies um doing different things um or doing the same starting as one thing and doing something else um the um you mentioned also intimate data uh, is there is there a, where does it, where does, what's the place for intimate data and maybe you might, might just go through what you mean by intimate data because we have in our business we were a service company we talk about um uh, an intimate service actually is what, is what we describe it as, uh, because actually we believe that the, the industry in general has dumbed down uh, support for, tech, for technology. So it's focused purely at moving the next product out into the marketplace. Um, and it is not, it's, and it's for the support side, it said, okay, what's the quickest way to uh, up, you know, offshore, they've uh, you know, outsourced it, they have you know, dumbed it down, they've put some technology in the way so you can't, can't actually get a person. Now, we all experience this even as, in, as individuals in our homes when we ring the, the local insurance company or for renewal of our insurance or you ring our bank, it's almost impossible to get anybody, you know, and you're really surprised if you get, but that's, we, that, that's what's happened. So we actually talk about intimate service and, and using the knowledge of our customer to get to enhance that service. Is that what you're talking about, that, that, type, of, that type of thing? No, basically. I mean, um, customer service is probably the most important marketing channel there is and the greatest ability to really differentiate your products and service. But no one ever talks about it. Um, you know, I'm at Can here where we celebrate the fact 
I think $800 billion a year is spent in advertising. You know, companies just saying, we're amazing, fly with us, we've got great seats, you know, bank with us, we've got good interest rates. Um, we spend $800 billion talking to people, and the moment they decide they're interested, like, oh, look, you know, I didn't realize the car could do that many MPG, you know, let's try and do, go for a test drive. The moment people show interest in them, um, we sort of vanish. Um, and I think we've made the mistake of being very intellectually lazy and not listening to people. Um, we've assumed that if we know people's phone numbers when they call us, that that's going to freak them out. You know, we assume if we answer the phone, hey, Thomas, you know, is this about your American Airlines flight to Dallas later today? We assume that you're going to be appalled that they know who you are. If it's an airline, you're putting your life in their hands. Um, if your TV knows when your extended warranty is about to disappear, these, these are not things that freak people out. So I think we should go through a process where we figure out one, how can we improve customer service? Um, and two, how can we use simple, non-freaky data, you know, like phone numbers, like your service record, like your location um, to offer much better service? It yeah. sounds a bit like you're doing that, so I'm, I'm I, glad I, yeah, no, and I think I like your description of the non-freaky part. I mean, it's okay yeah. to say to somebody, "Listen, we know that you have," because you told us about it. Yeah, yeah exactly. you know, when we when we do it in our business, it's like you told us all the technology, all the products that you're using. You told us where yeah. you're using them, what you're using them for. So when you ring us, we we're able to play that back to you. But what exactly. what gets freaky is if suddenly we turn up and start knowing all of this stuff and you haven't told us, like we, or even that you browse on our website and suddenly we know yeah. loads about you that you didn't, didn't expect us. It's exactly, like, yeah. it's like what people talk about, you know, are the phone, my, my wife keeps telling me, I wonder is, that, is my phone listening to me because I talked <laughs> about some topic and next thing it's like, I've been advertised. I'm getting adverts <laughs> on Facebook and I'm getting adverts on, you know, it's great. Isn't it? It's, it's, it's all, it's all a bit, all a bit crazy, isn't it? Yeah, it's a, like you say, it's exactly about context. It's exactly about um, sort of permission, not, not even sign permission, but cultural permission um, and, and a value exchange. You know, if, if uh, Levi's knows where I am, uh, I don't know how much value I can get from my jeans company knowing where I am. Um, if Uber knows where I am, if uh, Google Flights knows where I am, if um, my bank can not uh, reject transactions today because it knows I'm in France. These are things that they have permission and they have a value that they can offer with that. Okay. I'd love to talk about, um, you, you gave a definition of digital transformation and what it, what it actually means. But actually when you were talking through it and what, you know, putting, you know, dishwasher tablets, selling them <laughs> in one way and now selling them, selling them online, um, uh, I, I'm, I'm, and all the other ones you talked about, I wonder, are some of these things even necessary? Um, are we, have we, have we over-engineered the whole concept? Because we're going to hear later on, and, and actually next up is, is Harry with, he's going to talk to Annette and uh, Thierry and, um, and Mike uh, about some of the things that they're doing in their businesses and their experiences of it. But uh, in my head, like a trillion dollars being spent a year and I'm going, you know, you know, in our, in our view, it's like it's the old, get, it's the old out, out with the old, in with the new. It's almost always what people think about. And if we have everything, as you said earlier, that we already, we already, if we have everything we need, then are we thinking about things the wrong way? I mean, the, the you know, most companies are always thinking, oh, if it's if it's old, if it's past three years, it's old. Okay, now it's it's that legacy you talked about those legacy companies it's legacy technology it's this term it's a terrible term to 
put on it. But suddenly it's legacy and nobody wants the job to work in there. Or, and we have a business that's focused on legacy technology, legacy IBM and HCL software. That's where we make our business. So we're, we're growing. You know, Gartner talks about our industry growing by 33% per annum. I mean, that's a fast growing industry by any measure. You know, so yeah, yeah, it's focused on legacy, but there's a conceptually we struggle with this. You know, should we give it a different name, maybe? Um, that's a very interesting question. You know, should you even digitally transform? Um, and you asked it in a very different way um, because there are definitely some industries that don't need to change. Um, you know, if you're in the business of baking bread um, or making beer. You know, drones are not changing the beer drinking market. Um, you know, millennial behaviors may be moving towards hard seltzer, but there's no tech disruption. Uh, there's no sort of massive cost advantages. Um, but even more than that, I mean, um, it makes you realize everyone's so in love with new and new often doesn't really work that well. And new often is sort of over promised. You know, so the assumption is that if you run HSBC, you know, you should completely rewire your core banking system with brand new, you know, sort of cloud-based technology. And it's never really occurred to me, but you opened my mind to the fact that actually maybe you're better off delivering a more robust version of what you have now. Like maybe um, people don't need faster Wi-Fi, they need Wi-Fi that's more reliable. Um, I now have 5G on my phone. I'm not a miserable person, but 5G has been the worst thing that's happened to my mobile phone for last year. It just means I can't make phone calls in my apartment. And it means that if I'm driving around most cities, I lose my connection to my maps. And it was sold as being this next big sort of leapfrog. Yeah. And maybe there's a lot to be gained with incremental. Maybe there's a lot to be gained from maintenance. Maybe there's a lot to be gained from um, sort of robustness. And, you know, perhaps this is like a whole new sort of conversation. You know, maybe we don't need transformation. Maybe we need sort of shoring up, you know. Yeah. Well, if you, if you, if you look at what, if we're going to consume at the rate we've been consuming, we're actually going to run out of things to make the products with. Like, we're, mm -hmm. we're, you know, what, what I guess the war in Ukraine has shown us and the sanctions against Russia is that the raw materials that we need globally, this globalized market, many mm -hmm. of them, huge portions of them come from those two regions. And suddenly we close it all down. We've got, you know, the, the issues we had that COVID gave us are, are increasing significantly, you know? So you, um, I'm wary of time, so if you want to shut me up, you can. Um, but um, I'm wary most trends in life are actually uh, like sine waves. And most trends are reactions to things that went before. And in some ways, something like ultra fast fashion is a sort of rebellion away from the idea of a sort of French wardrobe, which people have luxury clothes that they wear a lot of the time and they last for a long time. And I think uh, consumerism has perhaps been a sort of 50 year trend. And maybe now is the time in which we realize that buying stuff from Ikea that falls apart um, is not a great way to own furniture. Maybe um, owning a car um, that, you know, gets a software update to be more fuel efficient is a great way to think about car ownership or, or sharing yeah. one. Um, you know, maybe it will become fashionable to behave in a way which is about having better things that last for longer. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to throw a, cur a curveball at you here. Because <laughs> so, so talk about, because in the tech industry, a lot of the, the protections and rules that exist come from intellectual property rights, for example. 
Okay. Mm. So I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not going to get into the details about IP <laughs> rights. But as, as two lay people talking to each other, we're both aware that intellectual property rights usually last a long time. Yeah. So about seven, about 70 years. Okay. Um, so you're talking about a long period of time, yet the technology that those rights are assigned to at most is about 12, maybe 14 years. Okay. And then the IP owner can take it off the market and say, right, you know what? And, I'm, and there's, there's something in that, you know, this, this happened and, and there's, there's nothing, we need some rule. We need to protect people's innovation, of course. But you wonder what happened? How did we end up giving them so long in an industry where nothing out there was 70 years old? You know, that even, we're gonna talk in a few moments about the mainframe. It's not even, it's the oldest piece of technology. Um, but it's not, it's not even um, 70 years old. So we've got challenges with, you know, the, 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 the rights that we give the companies that make the technology I think it's creating this challenge that they're not incentivized to create to to actually share this with anybody down the line. There's no incentives there. I just feel some things are they're set up wrong. If you were starting, it's like there's an old joke. If you know, if you're somebody's driving to to Cavan in Ireland, a part of the going, which is the north of the country, and he's asked for the way to to Kerry, and they go, well, I wouldn't start here. You know, you know, you'd start somewhere else. You know, so it is. It is like the rules have started all in the wrong place. Is that did that happen before? And is that is that and is that on? Can you un, when we unwind from that? Uh, it's very funny. That's literally the opening line of my book. That uh, that story of, of being lost in an Irish country lane. Um, so uh, essentially, the world wasn't built for now. Um, you know, the reason we have a government um, is because the assumption was that you couldn't listen to 60 million people in a country. You know, you had to find an elected representative who would represent the local population because you couldn't hear them because, you know, stage courses, uh, stage courses couldn't travel that fast. Um, you know, regulation, uh, taxation, these are all set up on, uh, parameters that are now out of date. And yeah, like um, a lot of IP rules is based on the idea that things happen slowly, that technology doesn't move that fast. You know, if you want to make money from a, uh, the IP of a telegram, you know, you can't possibly make all the money you need to in five years because, um, you know, people can't move that fast. And now you actually realize that companies can explode overnight. Um, so I, I'm not an expert in, in IP, but it certainly seems the case that one should go about um, the world and be somewhat naive and ask these questions. You know, what should, um, what protection should there be? And that's everything from, yeah, sort of patents all the way through to protocols, all the way through to licensing agreements. Um, and the, in a way, the question is, what's the optimum level for innovation? Because if you know that you can't make tons of money by creating a new cancer drug, then obviously the reason to invest in that innovation is reduced. Um, but it's certainly a conversation that should be had. Yeah, yeah. And I think you know, my introduction to you is a, as a healthy skeptic or a pragmatic skeptic, I think I just think we need more. more we, I, I count myself one as two, one of those two. So um, I think I think we need we need we need more of those in, in the uh, in the in in the marketplace and in the in the world. So um, uh, delighted that you're you're, you're part. We're, we're both part of that. I'd like to just wrap up with a final question, Tom. Um, um, you obviously put in your life talking writing about technology um what's the one piece one area of technology that you're 
I guess, most excited about as we kind of pass that kind of midpoint of the technology revolution. If we if we already have everything that we're supposed to have made and we're going to use it, what's 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 the what part of it, or is there some is there some version of it coming out that you're most excited about? Um, I've got two answers. So the one is to sort of answer the question properly. Um, I think that things like LEDs and batteries will be amazing. Um, I can kind of envision your future where you have a big battery pack um, locally generated and you, you know, power all of the things around your home with, with small batteries that come off it. Um, and things like LED lights are amazing. Um, but really, I kind of, um, I feel like it's the combinations of things we've got already. Um, you know, there's there's an amazing website called Behance where you can go on and see web design from up and coming uh, students. And some of the ways that they see apps working are extraordinary. You know, the process of ordering food online and what the experience could feel like, the process of buying a car and how that could feel, um, the degree to which um, a hotel experience may be that you walk in and they just say, you know, hello, Tom, this is your room. Um, I think we need much more optimism, much more imagination, um, much more ambition, but more than anything else, much more sort of empathy. Like how can we really work around people um, to create better products and services? Um, and I really don't think we need blockchain or Web3 or the metaverse or voice or 5G or artificial intelligence or robots. Um, the list goes on. Like yeah. we, we, we really do have everything we need. Um, and that's why I call my company All We Have Is Now, because it's about time that people just got on with it and made a difference. So I, I loved your comment that we don't need the metaverse, because no matter where I go now online, I'm told that <laughs> I, I, I need the metaverse. Um, I can't. I know. I'm. 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 I'm just. We're going to wrap up in a, in a minute. We've got a minute or two left, but I just want to have you because it's it's a great conversation. It's like I, I don't. And you see, when I'm talking about us living a life, this virtual life, and I know we, we all love our technology. We love it to bits. But we still have to experience the, re, the reality. This is like yeah. we. This is a great conversation. But if you were here sitting beside me. It would be even better. Way better. Yeah. Way better. Let me go yeah. to the pub. So there's no, there's no question. This and if this conference was live, it'd be better for everybody. We'd have a much, much more intimate conversation. You know, Absolutely. this thought of us actually, what you know, going to, you know, there's a key technology in in sport, as you know. You've got people going to wear headsets and they're going to share the headsets. Someone's going to be at the game, sitting there with a headset on, filming, it, and everybody else is going to be at home with the headset on. <laughs> Now, I guess maybe that's a better experience than a television, maybe, uh, for some. But, I mean, that, that's still not going to replace someone want to go there live, is it? No, and I think um, it's about time we had quite philosophical conversations about this, because um, I, I'm aware that both you and I and other people on this call, we may have what I think people called the sort of privilege um, I know the, the privilege of having a great life. Um, so perhaps if we were born into different circumstances or if we worked in different ways, like we wouldn't be able to enjoy being in Cannes or um, in, enjoy some of the experiences that we get to, to have. But I, I don't tend to agree with that. I, I think um, we are human beings. We are alive. Um, we are sort of born as tribes. We are born to be next to each other, to sort of feel the energy from each other. Um, and I think that entire conversation is somewhat um symbolic of this moment in time you know the richest people on the planet are trying to leave it you know rather than make it better um the richest people in the world are trying to create online worlds so we can sort of escape stuff that's around us 
And I think that's completely the wrong way to go about this. Um, we should be using our, our ideas, our energy, our time, our money um, to make everything better um, and not to try to replace it with some awful sort of digital form. Yeah, I like it. That's a nice way to end the conversation, Tom. <laughs> Thank you very much, Tom. Thank enjoy you very your, much, everyone. Enjoy your stay in Cannes, and we'll be talking again. Thank you. Take care. So there you have it. Our thanks again to Tom Goodwin for that fascinating conversation about digital transformation, about the emergence of new business models, about what's happening in the industry today, about keeping your head in your shoulders, being a skeptic. There's nothing wrong with that, ladies and gentlemen. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. We need more humans involved in this, less technology perhaps, and or perhaps it's what they talk about in France, what they call digital sobriety. There's nothing wrong technology it's going to empower us it's going to move us forward but actually maybe we can use a little bit less of it so yeah we will we at Origina are regularly talking about this we love to talk to you about how you extend the life of the assets that you have it is good for the environment it's good for your businesses and it can also get a better service for it so next time around i'm open to have brendan back here with me uh be two irish guys discussing some software we'll look forward to hearing from you have a great rest of summer And we'll talk to you soon. Take care.